Hello, welcome to some Derps Talk About Games. I'm your co-host, Mango. And I am your co-host, Buddy. And today we're going to talk about another one of these car movies. But before we do that, Buddy, why don't you the fucks know what it is we do on this podcast? On this podcast, we like to talk about games, but also car movies. And I'm so excited to talk about this one. Because honestly, it has had uh, a rocky... I've had a rocky relationship with Too Fast, Too Furious. <laughs> Really? Like it's it, I I don't understand how it's how it's rocky cuz uh, you know pre-spoilers I guess for a 19-year-old movie. <laughs> this movie can almost drink. Um uh is I thought it was really bad. Um oh, See, I actually think it's actually pretty good. But like I the first time I saw it I thought it was pretty bad. And um and it took me I you know what it really was when I first watched it. Okay. <laughs> I'm so excited to talk about this because this is a very recent re re revelation. The first time I watched it, I was like just getting into these movies. So I watched the first one and then I watched Too Fast, Too Furious. And, I, and then I watched Tokyo Drift and Tokyo Drift was where I like turned on. I was like, oh, oh, this is this is really fun. Actually, I actually I like these. Oops, I like these. Uh, but then very recently, like a couple of days ago, uh, or a couple of weeks ago, maybe like two or three weeks ago, I went back and I watched Too Fast, Too Furious, and I did not realize how well-crafted I think it is, um, in a, which is such a weird fucking thing to say, but I actually think I don't that understand the plotting of this movie is really well done in such a way that I can't help but enjoy it quite a lot. There, I, so the big thing for me is there are plot holes that like you could drive an entire semi truck through, right? Like, like none of like none of anything that's happening makes sense, and there's lots of unearned things, and that was too much for me to like hold on. Okay, to. that's interesting. I am down to talk about some of that stuff. I, the thing that I'm mostly interested in, what is predictably for me, I guess, are the stakes, right? Um, and how the and how the movie has this like really ramping element as it just keeps layering more and more kind of like stakes and threats and obstacles in front of you know our our heroes to to kind of make them conquer, which I, it is well known to be the kind of shit that I am into, right? Like sure. the stuff that makes me looking at the window with a shirt that says "sickos" and go, yeah, yeah. I mean, and there's definitely parts of this that like. I could like, like, like the very beginning of the movie. I was like, "Wow, the acting's bad." And I quickly forgot about that, which you know is fine. Like, you know, th there are forgivable problems here that, like, I don't. I won't, I'll try not to harp on too much, but like, it's got a lot of problems. The plot doesn't make a lot of sense, um, and uh, also I couldn't get over. So, so this, this is a line I've I thought of that I'm going to say now is you know. One of the effects of NOS is apparently turning your car into a 3D model, um, which, you know, like you were, you spoke about this in the last one. It's like, yep. um, actually, in most of, like, the actual plot scenes, the 3D modeling isn't so apparent. But in the two drag races, it's very apparent and very bad. It's like, yep. like I get that cornering's dangerous, but, like, they very obviously, like, put 3D models in, right? Like, I don't know uh, who they thought they were going to fool, right? Like... Um, yeah, I mean, it is like a movie from like 2002, so I feel yeah. like it has that. I, I I feel like it has that uh, like that age on it, right? Um, in a way that uh, is so noticeable now. Yeah, um, I, I but it almost, is definitely part of like the CGI cars suck phenomenon that that people complain about. 
I honestly think it might have been more forgivable if they were all always CG, because then you could be like, oh, I guess it's like what they're doing with this, I guess. Um, but you could tell they knew it sucked because they only did it for like dangerous cornering shots where they only showed like a corner of the car. And you could still tell it was very clearly a CGI car, right? Like... Um, yeah, I mean, I think the best the best moments in the movie are are outside of the context of those races, where it is you know like they're driving on the highway, right? Um, like that that stuff is great. You know, they drive the boat into the car, or the the car into the boat, right? Like that that's real, that's yeah. practical, and that's the stuff that works, right? But I definitely yeah. do agree that just from like a raw like I don't know like action perspective, CGI cars suck and are not fun and. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so, I mean, you kind of put a little spoiler in there, so we'll put the spoiler tag here. Um, uh, just because, like, I want I want to make clear that, like, when I see their plot, there are some, like, very obvious things that bothered me, but I'm not – like, there are a lot of little things that I'm willing to forgive, right? Like, like you know, the, the car could just happen to hit the boat. Unlikely, fine, right? Like, the other thing that really got me like, at the very beginning of moving that first drag race is, like, wait, he won't let them race unless there's four of them. And then he calls in his friend, but then he, his friend says, you know, who's, who's Brian, right? Brian says, let's up the bet. And the one guy's like, I don't want to do that. And he's like, well, you can go home then. It's like, well, you just <laughs> said that you couldn't race without four people. If he backs off the line, is the race not happening then? Um, and then also kind of like at the end of that race, when he like raises the fucking drawbridge, it's like, if I were in that race for money, I'd be like, I did not fucking sign up for this. This is a fucking <laughs> piece of shit, right? Like, it's I'm not giving you my fucking prize money. You watch it trash the cars, right? Right. Because they're these insanely low riding cars. And I guess it's Suki's car who goes up and over the bridge and just like, it's absolutely demolished coming in. Um, oh. Yeah. Oh, I mean, and, and like, but for that bridge rise, Brian maybe doesn't win. Right? Yeah. Like, it's, it's like, real close in the end, but, like, you know, the, the, the lead car, like, what, like, him leaping it, that's pretty cool. But, like, part of it, too, is that the second place guy, or the would-have-been-second-place guy, like, like loses control after that, right? Like, you know, and it, this is not good faith and fair dealing. Not, yep. you know, especially I, because, especially because Brian plays it in the moment, like he has outsmarted the guy. When realistically speaking, he didn't know that. <laughs> he yeah. didn't know that the drawbridge was going up. Which, to be fair, you know, like I would make the argument that responding to the unknown is part of what makes a good player or whatever. And like, yes, obviously Brian is doing the thing from the first movie. Well, th this is all spoilers talk, I guess. So we, I, I, I put that, 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 that I, okay. I intended. Yeah. To. So like, uh, he, I, I appreciate that it is a callback to um uh to that first movie um and it foreshadows the the boat the boat ramp right like that that's yeah um and hey like i said that's dumb but that's not the thing that bothers me right that's the thing that's like oh this is a dumb action movie right like these are these are okay so what are the real plot holes though that's what i'm really interested in oh uh, so the big ones are um the, the big ones are like this kind of like well first first of all some of this is just kind of like you know Maybe I know a, just a little bit too much about the criminal justice system, but it's like as soon as they hand over the money to the undercover drivers, that's the game. They don't need them to drive it like anywhere, right? Like they'd be like, like this is you have like literally committed an act in furtherance of a conspiracy, right? Like you you have you have broken down like and like like they should have let the local cops make the arrest, right? And <laughs> And, like, this is the other one, too, right? Like, they know the specific guy who is on the take, right? And even if they are afraid that, like, there's other people on the take in the organization, they can go to that guy and be like, we will put your wife and kids in witness protection program. Just 
call them off for the 15 minutes like he wants you to so our mission can go through, right? Like, none of this makes any sense. None of this makes sense in terms of, like, how you would actually do it, like, making sure that, like, this goes smoothly, right? And that's fine. Or, I mean, it's, I mean, th these are the things that bother me, right? Like, in terms of, like, an action movie thing, like, whatever, but it's so glaring to me, it's like, why are, why are they doing any of this? They're doing it to make to up the stakes, Mango. Okay, to make it to why, the stakes higher. Why do all like hundred fucking drivers agree to fucking help Brian with this thing? Because they're all <laughs> because it's a fucking sweet moment. <laughs> this is the part where I think. So I guess really my big thing. People people really like the first one and tend to shit on Too Fast Too Furious, which makes me want to. Um, come to its rescue in a way because i think too fast too furious is better than the fast and the furious even though obviously i like the one it establishes all the world building we talked about it however many weeks ago right like it 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 has maybe my favorite line that i quote all the time you can have any brew in the house as long as it's a corona right like all of these things are, are established, and Too Fast, Too Furious has basically none of them. The only thing it has is the chemistry between Brian O'Connor, Roman Pierce, and Tej. And that's, that's oh, kind of it. That was the other... Which one? Is Tej the woman? No, no, no. Tej is... Uh, oh, Chris. okay, yeah. Okay, the so woman the is Ava Mendez. She is Monica. All right. Does, does she come back at any point? Um... Yes, but like not in a really, okay. really okay. real that, way. That, that's that's fine. <laughs> the the thing about her, like her and Brian's romance doesn't make any sense, right? Like it's like totally unearned, and like 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 her her plot critical role doesn't make any sense in the story. That was like, the thing that like really like that was one of the things that like really really got me because she like you know I get her showing up on the boat to be like hey he's gonna try and kill you right like that makes sense it's like a cop plot point but then them kissing right like why. Right, like that doesn't like there's like like I mean I guess you exactly because all of his all of his chemistry is with Roman because they're <laughs> they're gay lovers, Mango. <laughs> and I, I do want to talk about I do want to talk about the homosexual subtext. Actually, technically, it would be bisexual. So subtext, the Asian the Asian but, woman to like the the asshole guy says bend over and then rear ends his car <laughs> in the opening race. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like I do think I do think that the the bisexual reading of uh, Too Fast Too Furious is very like legitimate, right? And I actually think that by, if it, it actually improves the movie by quite a bit, right? Um, essentially, essentially, with the understanding of if you imagine Brian O'Connor and Roman Pierce to be two bisexual men, right, um, and who had a breakup. Uh, because and they mentioned a little bit later down the line, Tanya, they had they had a breakup because, you know, Brian had commitment issues and he had this wandering eye for for women, which is why Roman is so fucking jealous of Brian, like giving the eyes to Ava Mendez's character and everything. And Wait, I think so, all of that so stuff like. Are you saying he gets so mad that he steals four cars and gets himself arrested? And that's like. <laughs> Well, you know, like, honestly, so there's also, like, that sort of subtext to it, right? Like, one of the things that I think keeps Too Fast, Too Furious out of bad territory, Real realistically speaking, I think the movie is fine, right? When I was talking about Marvel movies last week, I talked about there are the good ones, there are fine ones, and then there are bad ones. Realistically, Too Fast, Too Furious is really just fine, right? And it's not even that fine. It's kind of middle fine, right? I, like, I, so <laughs> I, I would say I, I'm going to disagree with you hard here. I'm going to say it's a bad movie, but it's a bad movie that is 
fun enough to transcend its badness, right? Like, from, like, a core okay. kind of, like... You know how, like, you talk about, like, movies that you know are objectively... Like, that, 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 are, that you like better than they are objectively... Yes. Like quality, like I think the objective quality of this movie is very, very low, but it's fun enough that it's um, that it's acceptable. It's like I don't. Know, I want to say like if you imagine like these kinds of movies is like almost like a U, where like they're fun, it their fun's here, but their quality's here, right? And like The Room or something like that is like a big stretch, right? Like you watch that movie because you know it is. It is, like, very objectively terrible, but it's so fun that it's up there. I think this movie has a smaller, like, curve, but the... And some of the fun isn't just at laughing at it, right? Like, like a lot of the fun of the room is, like, laughing at the movie. This so, movie has some okay. enjo legitimately enjoyable action sequences, for instance, right? Like, yeah, so, like, I, 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 I do want to be clear. I am not laughing at this movie, and I do take it seriously, right? Like, I buy... There, there's parts of this that I don't necessarily buy, um, but, like, I buy the, the core relationship between Brian and Roman, right? And the fact that they are, these are, you know, even outside of this bisexual stuff, estranged friends right. who are, you know, like, reconnecting as part of this, you know, plot line to, to infiltrate whatever, Verone's operation. I, I, I buy that on its own, you know, like, on its own merits. And I, and I take that sort of drama sincerely, right? And I do think that insofar as it is an action movie, it is sort of like a thriller, you know, a thriller is the wrong title for this. But, like, part of what an action movie is supposed to do is to thrill you, right? There are legitimately, like, really thrilling parts, right? When they're sure. racing to get to the Ferrari, for instance. Um, that's a really great moment, right? With with a lot of fun and interesting stuff that they're doing with the cars. And all of those stunts are really practical and cool, right? There's the part where, you know, Brian... You know, Ro Roman flips Brian off, and then Brian swaps into reverse or whatever. And you can tell that those are real stunts that they pulled on, you know, like real highways, basically, right? Um, all of that stuff, all of that stuff works. And I think that stuff works on its own merits such that um, it, it, like, it, it gets out of that, like, so bad it's good territory, right? This is not me trying to make a, a, a one of those sorts of arguments. I will say, though, that I think I agree... On certain other issues. The things that hold this movie back, right? Um, a lot of the other character relationships and acting, I think, are pretty bad. Not great. Bad. Um, some of the characters in here are doing just fine kind of character work, right? Like, there's the guy who, um, you know, there's the FBI handler um, who's from the first movie. There's the new cop guy who thinks that, you know, like, Brian and Roman are going to run Right, like all, th those guys tend to do just just fine. I think Verone sort of sucks. I think a lot of these other sort of supporting characters around, you know, around him kind of suck. The only really like kind of quote unquote good actors would be Brian Roman and Tej, but they're not even really good actors. They just kind of sell the bromance of the, you know, like of their relationship well enough. Um, so, you know, like, so, that's kind of, it's stuff like that that I think is holding it back, right? Like, the editing not being very interesting or dynamic or doing, doing these weird CGI fly-throughs of the cars or whatever. Like, I think that stuff sucks. Uh, the cinematography is actually weirdly okay, but also mostly it sucks just because it's very straightforward. There's not a lot going on. All of the rooms, you know, it's lit like a Marvel movie, basically, right? Um, with yeah, just it, all of the rooms being completely awash in light. There's no shadows anywhere, like that kind of stuff. It's it's serviceable but not like impressive, yeah. um, and it's also kind of like a shame because like the first the, the first one wasn't like you no, know, 
a cinematic masterpiece or anything, but it did have a significant portion that happens at night that's, like, lit like night, right? Like, whereas, yep. like, this one, the one night scene is very bright um, from what I remember. Um, so, yeah, but, um, but yeah, uh, so, yeah, I, I, I just, I just can't come around to say that this is, like, a good movie, right? Like I could, I can sit, I can sit here and tell you that if it was on, and I wanted to like have some beers while having something stupid on in the background, <laughs> I'd be fine with it. Um, even if you were like, you know, we're gonna marathon Fast and the Furious, be like, okay, it's not like it's so bad that like I would like, you know, refuse to watch this entry or whatever, or even hate watch it. But like, it's not gonna be one that I'm gonna be like, this, okay. like, this is a thing that like I would ever. This is the only way I would ever watch this again is in the context of a Fast and Furious marathon. Um, okay. Yeah, I that, that's that's definitely interesting because that is very much how I felt the first time I watched it, um, and I sort of wonder if seeing the rest of the movies and kind of soaking in you know the later appearances of Roman and Tej as part of the Fast and Furious family have changed that you know like have changed my way the way I come back and watch this right because I was in that same situation when I first watched the movie and I thought it was truly bad um but I also think part of it was I didn't get quite dialed into this like the stakes right the most recent time I watched it I was legitimately like I've talked about this effect before where you know I'm watching something I'm watching something as I'm doing something else I'm playing Hearthstone and I have it going on in the background right and what's a very common thing for me to do, for instance, for Man of Steel, right? For Man of Steel, which is, you know, a movie, I will, I'll watch that in the background all the time. I always get pulled out of it or pulled out of whatever I'm doing to focus on the action scenes. Because I think the action in that movie is so compelling, right? So, you know, you have the fight. You know, Superman versus Zod, I'm going to watch that blow for blow, shot for shot, every single time. Just because, like, the the I think the filmmaking is, is so good in those action scenes that it is impossible to, to look away from um and i've described that with other things too right like it, it was a similar thing with the sight gags in uh chippendale right it was just so full of all of these you know little little you know sight gags that i i was just sitting there watching the movie even though i normally would kind of be maybe paying half attention to something like that while i'm doing something on my other screen the same sort of thing happened to me specifically around the climax, right? Because I was keyed into a lot of little minor details um, in everything that really just sold just sold me on the whole experience, right? The fact that they are undercover, right? So there's the threat that they're going to be discovered at any time. Then, even though they are undercover, you know that they're going to be killed by the guys who show up to get into their cars, right? Just before the end of it, right? And you know that the the FBI is expecting them to run, right? At any at any individual moment. So the FBI are also like breathing down their necks ready to throw them in jail. And you know that like and it's just like this all of these things are ramping up on top of one another to create this just like how how are they going to get out of this one feeling right of just like what like what what are they going to possibly do to outsmart all of these things that are ramping up the the kind of the tension and and the stakes and the eventual payoff for some of this stuff right like the injector scene is and it's just like cool and it's and it's fun right and you get and you can see how those pieces of the puzzle were set up and will pay off later in the, you know, 
in the story, right? They anticipate that there are going to be problems with this heist, which is why they design their cars with, you know, they, they go to Tej and they say, hey, we want to, ch we want to, you know, put a bunch of work in to do this. And you watch that work happen. You don't know what it's for yet, but you will, you will eventually learn, oh, it's because they, they, they're putting in these fucking ejector seats and all this other sort of stuff. And I just think that on that level, I was very in tune with Too Fast, Too Furious on my most recent watch through, which, which is what elevated it, it was more specifically above the first one, right, um, for me. Even though, uh, even though I still do love the first one or whatever, I, it's just it's weird. I got to say, Too Fast, Too Furious is better. I, I, I just disagree. I think part of it is that, like, you know, it's not like they pay off a ton of these stakes in like a super, like, you know, like you said. Um, so, you know, I, so the, the big ones are like the the bad guy, the FBI and the, the kill, I guess. Right. Is, is, yeah. is that fair? So like, like, you know, the, the, I don't know. I thought, I thought that like the ejector sheets were a little bit like too, too strongly foreshadowed for it to really be a surprise. Um, like he literally says, do you have any half bottles of NOS lying around? Right. He's like, we might need to eject some problems later. And it's like, you know, it's like, you know, the, the only thing that was surprising about me is that it wasn't more cartoonish. I was expecting like an out the top rather than out the side <laughs> thing. Um, yeah. Okay. Um, yeah. I, the thing, actually, the real thing I like about the ejector seats is the, is the tension in the second one, right? Because you have the first one where, you know, I think it's Roman does it first, right? Where he ejects his guy. Um, but Brian is hesitating and that ends up being the right move because they learn that like the rendezvous point is a different location and right. they need to go somewhere else. Um, that was, and, that uh, was another little thing, right? Like, uh, you know, henchman number two should have known something was up when henchman number one didn't, didn't tell, um, didn't tell Rome that he needed to pull off at the different point, right? Like everybody should have known something was up, but like they, you know, yep. Um, uh, and, uh, anyway, continue, continue with what you were saying. I'll, I'll get to. And so, it's just, and so to me, it's that stuff. Actually, the other one I really like, I think the one that really got me was the 15 minute window, right? Where you watch the officer who is supposed to give them the 15 minute window say, you like all, you know, like all units move on, move on Verone or whatever. And you know, oh, like, boom. We Brian and Roman are now the getaway drivers with every cop in the city after them at the same time that they're undercover, at the same time that they're, you know, riding with guys who are going to kill them, at the same time that they're going to meet up with Verone, who explicitly wants to kill them, at the same time that the FBI doesn't trust them. It's just like that was the that was the real thing that started the whole you know, like the whole like clock in my okay. head and just like ticking in time to this movie. So I, I, I get that and I can see exactly where we diverge, which is because as yeah. that was happening, I was like, why did they not pull this guy and just be like, let it go? Right. Like, you know, like there's <laughs> like there is like literally no reason for them to let him like, you know, like like they could have set it up in a way that like, you know, it wasn't like that, that they didn't have to, you know, know it. Right. Like the, you, the, you could have done it. Right. You could have. Yeah. Like there's a like there's also a bunch of like it feels like there's like a handful of missing scenes right like I feel like there should have been more build up with uh Brian and the agent's uh love story right I thought that like like it almost feels like um Rome handing over the last three bags is missing a scene where the FBI agent knows that there's an extra three bags is gonna throw him in jail if he doesn't do the right thing right. Um, but that doesn't happen, and it doesn't make really make any sense why he hands over the second three bags of cash. 
um, other than, I guess, to show he's not a bad guy, but then they, they turns out that they've stuffed their money pants with money anyway, right? Like, I don't know. Like, like all these, like all these little things, like took me out of the tense moments. It was like, yeah, okay, it's fun as an action movie, past that. But like, I, I don't know. It felt like, I guess, part of it too is like, you know, that I, I just didn't feel a lot of that tension, right? Like, like you know, like jumping the car onto the boat, pretty rad, right? Like, you know, and that that felt that felt really good, right? But and like the individual moment to moment stuff felt really good, but like the overall stuff is just kind of like, eh. Right, like this is this does not make any sense to me, and because of that, I am I am not. Um, interestingly, this is kind of like I think what you talk about with like the bathos stuff, right? Yeah. Like you know, like that undercuts the tension for you because it makes it less serious, and I've definitely felt that at times too. Um, in the same kind of way, the end under the, the tension is undercut for me because like some of these things have kind of some of these things have like obvious solutions that they don't do, and it's like this is hard. Because it's not just kind of like, you know, flawed character stuff, which is, you know, like, you know, people taking the non-optimal route is not is not generally a valid criticism to me, unless it's very obvious, right? So, um, but, you know, but yes, that, that is kind of like the, the big stack. I think that's where we really diverge. Like, that moment is is, is where we diverge, right? Like, you're okay, seeing this tension. That actually makes a lot of sense. Yeah, because I think it, it also is the, you know, like, we talk about the buy-in factor, right? Where, like, if you are on board for something, you know, like, your your sense of, uh, your suspension of disbelief is intact, it turns things like all of the cars coming out of that thing. That moment is cool if you're on board. That moment is lame if you're off board yeah. right um and i think that that's part of what you know like that's part of how this stuff like comes down it's also interesting because it is something of a heist movie that is doing heist movie things but this is actually before oceans 11 12 and 13 which like have we ever talked about those on the podcast uh we did we, we did in back halves because i watched them all with my with my family like okay. a year ago. I'd like yeah. those movies are obviously fantastic and I love all of them, right? Um but I think that they have a kind of uh in the same way that like Lord of the Rings had this genre codifying effect where you know, it made kind of like story-wise, I guess, it sort of like made so many things that cup came after it like conform to the way that it did things right you can see that with the the led the the lord of the rings trailer whatever it's called i think it's called the rings of power trailer for the amazon series like they are just straight up aping the like the, the lord of the rings movie which is like fair enough you know that movie is those movies are absolutely transcendentally good so if you're gonna ape something it would make sense to ape that right um but i was definitely really interested by how this movie is a heist movie that predates the Oceans movies, which I think would later do a lot of these sort of bait and switches where the main characters are sw are like duping the audience in the same way that they're kind of like duping the cops, um, while at the same time predating the like the genre codifiers of that, which I would say obviously are are that that Oceans uh, that Oceans trilogy from the mid two thousands. See, that's that is interesting. Okay, this is the same year as the Italian Job remake. I wonder. Um, uh, so that's May thirtieth, and when is Too Fast Too Furious? Uh, just because, like, I'm thinking about this, right? And I think you're right, but there's also like an era of um, of heist movies that are in like the '60s um, 
which is like the original Italian, Italian job. And then um, someone's with like um, the famous actor. His first name is Red, I think, um, that I've seen a couple of. Um, no, there are definitely more of these. Gone in 60 Seconds was another one, right. which I also actually fucking love that movie. That movie is truly stupid, but also very cool. Oh, you know what this is? This is one of those. This is one of those two studios makes the same movie at the same time. Um, fucking Too Fast Too Furious comes out six days after the Italian job. <laughs> uh which is, you know, another famous, like, car heist movie. I think I might be having internet problems, so hold. Uh, okay, it looks like you're stabilized. Sorry about that, folks at home. Um, God, this is this is going to make me want to go watch. Uh, 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 God, it's 60 seconds. Let's do it. Yeah, I mean, I, we've got a whole bunch of these movies to watch, like these, like, 90s-esque aughts movies to watch. We've got to watch that. We've got to watch Hackers. We've got to watch... Uh, what was it? What was the other? We were talking about these during the first the the, the first movie, um, but yeah, um, yep. So, but like, I I think part of this too is that like it's kind of also like a shallow movie, maybe right? Like, you know, we could sit here and talk about like specific scenes for a while, but like, I don't know. It feels it feels like there's not like a lot here. There's not there's not a lot of there there as it were. Right. That that is definitely fair. There is really not all that much to uh, outside outside of this sort of bisexual subtext uh, that I alluded to before, which is really just taking the earnest. I think we would all agree that this like relationship drama is the the kind of emotional core of the movie, right? You know, Roman it, like the character arcs that are playing out is Roman and Brian. You know, so so this this is a thing that I'm gonna le level as a criticism, I guess is. It's not character arcs, it's one character arc. Paul Walker is always correct, right? Like, Rome has to, like, take take responsibility for his actions, right? Because Brian has done no wrong, actually, in any of this, right? He's always the good guy, he's always right. Um, which maybe isn't a criticism so much as, like, a plot point, or maybe just an interesting one, but, like, Rome, Rome is wrong for having been mad at Brian because he didn't have anything to do with his imprisonment. Right. And Rome has to learn how to deal with that. And Rome kind of does that on his own off screen and without any, like, you know, and the payoff is like, I'm sorry, Brian, you were right. You were always, you were always the best. And thank you for being my friend. Um, I disagree with that because I do think that like there was a legitimate apology. Like Brian legitimately apologizes to Roman for kind of abandoning him. Like, yes, at the end of the day, Roman does accept responsibility. It is not Brian's fault that he got busted. Um, but, Brian does feel legitimately bad that he walked out on his friend, right? And he I, apologizes I for that in the same scene that he feels Roman, like he feels bad, but it's not like he could have like explicitly he couldn't have done anything, right? Like he feels bad because he couldn't do anything for his friend, but there was nothing for him to do, right? Like like th this th the point is that he lets Dom go in the first movie because he feels bad that he couldn't do anything for his friend, even though there was like but it's, like, he couldn't do anything, not that he had the opportunity and chose not to do it. Right, like, like this is just more of Brian's a saint, right? Like, I that's interesting. I guess I see what you mean, but I feel like you know, like in an abstract sense, Brian could have done more for Roman, right? But he didn't. Just because, like, in the specific narrow avenue of could Brian have gotten, you know, like gotten Roman off or whatever. For, for whatever dumb shit Roman was doing, the answer is no. Like, I do think that he still does abandon his friend and move to and move to L.A. 
right? And that's the thing that he's apologizing for in that moment. And that's the thing where he later talks about why he gave Dom the keys and how and it ties back to, you know, like the the way that he did the like the way that he did Rome dirty a little, right? Um, I think that's was, a reach. I don't think the text of the movie support, supports this. You know, I, I, I so I think the text of the movie does support it. I think your point is that the text of the movie is very inconsistent. <laughs> okay, right? Like the text of the movie, Brian like apologizes and he says that exact thing, right? Where he's like, where Rome goes, did you let that guy go in L.A.? And Brian goes, yeah, basically. Right. Right? So, 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 but the, what the text of the movie says is that he like the the line is something like you know, I. You know, cop or not, I would have done anything to help you, right? Um, but the text of the movie tells you that he couldn't have done anything, right? And that's when, you know, uh, Rome counters with, you know, is that why you let that guy go in L.A., right? Um, uh, and so I I take your, like, I think the movie, the movie wants us to, to, to think that Brian feels, like, Brian feels bad and... The movie, I think, wants us to think that he has, like, a reason to feel bad, but, like, the... But he never actually has that reason. Yeah. Right? There is no underlying reason at the yeah. end of the day. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Um, so, yes, I will I will take your point that the text... I think the text of the movie is consistent, but the tone of the movie wants to imply things that the text doesn't support. Does that make sense? Yeah. I, I think I'm on board with... Um, I'm on board with that angle. I also think that at a certain point, um, you know, the... The mechanics of superimposing his relationship with Dom to his relationship with Ro with Roman also doesn't work, right? Like, obviously, they are both friends, and they are both, like, have this kind of, like, criminal relationship, but Brian does truly fuck Dom over and lie to his best friend, you know, about, about like, the, Fast and Furious 1 is a movie where those things line up very well, yes. right? Yeah. Brian does legitimately fuck this guy over, and he has a reason to feel bad about, you know, like, making that making that decision, right? Um, I also, you know, I also think that even though I do think Too Fast, Too Furious is better than Fast and the Furious 1, a lot of that comes down to the action being better um, and and this stuff with, like, the plot and the stakes all working much better than, than everything that's going on in, you know, in Fast and Furious 1. But the relationship between Vin Diesel and Paul Walker is a step above the relationship between... Roman and actually, you know, they're, they're a little bit different. The thing I like about the relationship between Roman and, and, and Brian is that they're having so much fun. You know what I mean? Like yeah. these guys, like the moment where, um, they walk into Tej's it's at night. They go to Tej's garage and Roman says to Brian, there's a lot of potential here. And, and Brian does that thing where he, he hugs, uh, Roman from behind, like, yeah, brother. Like, that. that is a moment that tr communicates kind of, like, true kind of casual friendship in a way that I don't think exists as much in the first movie. I with, agree. Uh, with, with Brian and... Um, Brian and Dom, but like I think that the moment at the sunset when they are apologizing to one another doesn't carry the serious sort of vulnerable friendship, right? That you obviously can see that Dom and Brian share in uh Yeah, the like the, the last scene of the Fast and the Furious is like a big emotional moment that largely mm. works, right? I don't think there are a lot of big emotional moments in the, this movie that like like that even like try and play the same way, right? Like, like, like the closest thing you get is the sunset apology, and that's not even trying to play in the same way that the the, the first movie is. Which is, you know, to its credit, it's not trying to do the same thing again. Yeah. Right. But like, 
that that moment is understated, whereas the other one is climactic, right? The yeah. climax of the Fast and the Furious is this quarter mile drag race, which is which is full of this, you know, like the, these pregnant character beats that are playing out in the subtext while they are racing, right? Um, whereas in in Too Fast Too Furious, all it is just the conversation that they are having is, and it is a quiet, you know, it is a it is a serene and a calm conversation, right? But there is the, like, again, outside of any bisexual <laughs> subtext, there is really no extra subtext to that. The, you know, besides just the words on the page where Brian says he's sorry and Roman admits that, you know, he's blaming Brian for, you know, his own his own mistakes that he needs to kind of accept responsibility for. Um, but yeah, I, but I do think that that the playful side of it really does come into like part of what makes one fast one furious feel worse from the last time I watched it was that it is so serious and dour in a way that the later movies are not. Um, and, like, the movies that make you fall in love with the Fast and Furious franchise, I think they're the things where Brian and Roman are, like, riffing. They, they're, they're having, like, car-to-car -car banter, even though they can't actually talk to one another. They don't have the walkie-talkies yet. As they're, as they're racing to go to the package in, in the Ferrari, and they're both showing off to one another. Right, like that—that's the kind of playfulness that that communicates that like friendship. That you know, it's like, oh, they're just such bros. I—I want to love like that, Mango. <laughs> uh, well, you know, I get that. I was gonna say like this. This almost feels like you know the Saturday morning cartoon version of the Fast and the Furious in some ways, right? And it feels and that I, I guess that's how like the rest of the series plays out, right? As like kind of. The, like, the goofy, like, or it's almost like the Saints Row effect, right? Where the first one is a serious movie and it just slowly, like, slides more into the absurd as the series goes on because that's the... You know, it, so I will say that it does get crazier, but I, do, I don't think it ever gets absurd. Like, the thing that makes The Fast and the Furious work is that it is incredibly out there, high-octane shit, but also... It's taking itself dead seriously. Yeah. So, like, so I mean, it, it does get more absurd, right? But yeah. like, it's not that like it's, the absurdity isn't played for laughs, like laughs, like it is to say Saints Row, right? Like, it's just to like you know, point out where that comparison doesn't work, right? Because like you know, fucking throwing a torpedo across the ice, as you've described, happens in one of these later movies. That's absurd, but it's played seriously. Whereas if you did that yeah. in like say Saints Row, it, it, it would be like played for a gag, right? Yeah, and, and part of the tension, I think, in the Fast and the Furious franchise um, that sort of rocks it a little bit in the later installments is that The Rock, you know, this is something, did we talk about the Black Adam trailer last week? We did, yes, right? Yes, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, so the, thing that, the thing that really attracted me to the Black Adam trailer is that The Rock is not playing The Rock in it, right? That he seems to truly be playing, you know, Teth Adam, Black Adam, this fucking serious guy who is from ancient Egypt and is going to murder and is a supervillain, right? But he just so happens to be one that will murder people, right? Uh, or that will save lives, I mean to say, rather. He is, he's an, an anti-hero, I guess is a better, a better word for what Black Adam is. And, um, and how that's so different compared to what we get from The Rock normally, right? In Jumanji, in Jungle Cruise, you know, um, 
in Hobbs and Shaw, which is a Fast and Furious spinoff. All of those movies are movies where he has this very, like, winking, charismatic, you know, persona. And he, he's basically playing his wrestling character, kind of. Yeah, and that's something that that comes out in the Fast and the Furious series, right? Over time, but in Fast Five, we, we we talked about this. In Fast Five, he is dead. He's playing dead straight because he that that movie star persona hasn't shown up yet. But by the time we get to Fast, excuse me, Fast Seven and Fast Eight, um, he, it is it is a little bit less serious, and he is kind of treating it like a, like a Saturday morning cartoon, which kind of is why things don't really work and don't really coalesce in some of those movies. Um, but obviously I, I, that's a, that's a preview of later opinions. We'll, we'll, we'll get, we'll get, we'll get there. <laughs> uh, where, and, and the thing that's the opposite of this is Vin Diesel, who is, you know, in the words of Patrick H. Willems, every, every word that Vin Diesel speaks in the Fast and Furious series, it's like goddamn Shakespeare. You know what I mean? Like, he is playing it to the utmost sincerity as they are talking about the most batshit insane shit, right? Like, and, uh, and I think that that's the stuff that, that is like the heart of, of what, of what makes these, these movies great. Um, so do you think One Fast, One Furious is better than Two Fast, Two Furious? Would, yes. Would you say that? Okay. I would. Without, without any reservation. Sure. Yeah. Okay. Uh, well, <laughs> I guess that's our, that's our rankings. We have our Marvel rankings, but I do want to keep track of our Fast and Furious rankings. Oh, that's a good point. So, Gotta spin up a Google, do- another Google Doc. <sighs> so we have Two Furious, Two Fast, and The Fast and the Furious. I'm very interested to see where Tokyo Drift ends up on your uh, <laughs> on your outline. Oof! I I'm 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 excited to see Tokyo Drift just because you know there's the whole Donkey Kong thing. DK. Tokyo Drift is the one that gets memed on the most, um, but uh, God, it's a it's a whole it's a whole thing. I will we'll talk about it. Yeah, no, I I would be interested to I'm interested to see kind of. How this looks, since I haven't really seen any of these movies, but like I know it's like around like the fourth or the fifth one where like it actually coalesces into like a cinematic universe, as it were, right? Like the first three are kind of like like largely standalone, right? Like you don't need to have watched the first one to understand what's happening in Too Fast, Too Furious, um, and it's just Paul Walker's character, right? Like none of the other characters come. Uh, uh, come over um except for the, the fbi, FBI agent yeah but but first of all he does not ever come back after really the that's a disappointment uh, yeah, in in a movie with tons and tons of continuity well you know like at a certain point they're above the fbi's oh actually i could be wrong about that anyway well we'll figure we'll we'll, we'll, we'll see yeah. I, I, fast and furious the fourth one is the one i have seen the I, I've, I think I've only seen it once or twice, and he might come back in that one. I don't quite remember. I was just, like, if you want to keep bring the character back, you just promote him along with the crew, right? Like, you know, now he's like the director of like, you know, the the, the car force or whatever, you know, they're they're doing. <laughs> um. <laughs> oh God! Hell yeah! That's oh, that's beautiful. What a what a thing of beauty. But yes, the first three are definitely very standalone. I mean, the third one has literally no other characters from the franchise except for at the very end Vin Diesel shows up um and it is like Vin Diesel shows up in the way that you know like Nick Fury shows up at the end of Iron Man basically um so 
and he's not even in the second movie. Wait, so so like the plot of Tokyo Drift is just so is completely divorced from anything that's come so far. Come so far. It yes, but it it loops back around. So the the big thing outside of the context of the movie itself to know is that Tokyo Drift is when the most important man. Maybe the second most important man, because I think they're all written by the same the same guy, starting with three. Um, the most important guy that comes in Tokyo Drift is director Justin Lin, right? Um, Justin Lin came from, you know, he made like an indie movie, and he, he his first like big blockbusters is, is essentially Tokyo Drift. And then he stays on to direct Fast and Furious, uh, Fast Five, uh, whatever Fast and Furious Six is called, and then come and then he comes back later and d- is the guy that did F Nine. And in fact, he was supposed to do F Ten, and he probably got fired. And we're all very nervous about that, by the way. So like he came in and and is the one who sort of ushered the whole franchise into the state at which it became kind of famous, right? Which is that sort of you know Fast Five, Fast Fast Six, Fast Seven run. Um, of, of when, like, kind of the group coalesces and everything. So, it starts off, like, like, you are going to watch this movie and it is going to have zero connection to anything else, right? Um... Wasn't it just Furious Six? I think it might be Furious Six. uh, I think it was Fast Five and Furious Six. According, according to Wikipedia, it says it is, it is Fast and Furious Six, um, which makes it the only... One that like follows a conventional sequeling title or <laughs> format, um, except that it follows Fast and Furious in like it's like in like the typography. It's like the Fast and the Furious, and it's too Fast, too Furious, which is not conventional. Then it's the Fast and the Furious colon Tokyo Drift, no number, Fast and Furious for four, Fast Five, and then Fast and Furious Six, which typographically only follows Fast and Furious, which is the fourth one, right? Yeah, uh, and then it's Furious, Furious 7, 7, and then it is the, F8, the Fate of the Furious, and then it's F9. According according to Wikipedia, is The Fate of the Furious, and F9, and then Fast X. Um. <laughs> yeah, baby. Fast X for Fast 10. God, this movie <laughs> franchise. Uh, even even the, the titles are so great. Yeah, so Justin Lin enters in Fast and the Furious Tokyo Drift, and he introduces new stuff to kind of the lore and the continuity. Um, and then that stuff will come back later, right? So next, the next time we do this, you will watch that movie and you will see zero connections. But as we watch Fast and Furious, you know, Fast Five, you know, Fast and Furious Six, you like they will tie back together uh, and and wrap things around, basically. So, so like, yes, Tokyo Drift is the beginning of the Avengers Initiative uh, equivalent, essentially, is is what it sounds like. <sighs> Technically speaking, it would really be the first one that is sort of like that. I mean, the the overarching the overarching progression is that you have one, two, and three, which are all each standalone stories, essentially, right? Brian O'Connor features in the first two, but nobody features in the third one. Then you find out that a, a character in Tokyo Drift used to roll in Vin Diesel's crew, right? Vin Diesel shows up, and he's looking for he's looking for his friend, right? 
Then there's Fast and Furious, which is the fourth one. And in the Fast and the and in Fast and Furious, you see Vin Diesel hanging out with that guy from his crew, right? Like, so you you now know that Fast and Furious is a flashback prequel to what would eventually be Tokyo Drift, right? Wait, um, Fast and Furious is a prequel? Yeah, Fast and Furious is a sequel to The Fast and the Furious and Too Fast Too Furious, but it is chronologically before Tokyo Drift. This will this will make sense later. It but it is not going to make a lot of sense later. Okay? Is, is like, this the is this the only timeline shakeup that I have to worry about? Um, basically yes. Okay, and then what happens? So it's it's four, right? And then it is five and six, and then it is. Tokyo Drift, right? So after after six, Tokyo Drift happens. Then seven, eight, nine. That's that's it. What? <laughs> what? Yeah, so this will this will make very little sense. But I just want you to keep in mind, pay attention to all the little signifiers that Tokyo Drift is like a movie from two thousand and five, and just remember those. Just remember those because they pay zero attention to the to that detail. It is not as though like Fast and Furious and Fast Five and Fast and Furious Six are period pieces set before two thousand five. They are all essentially set in the present day. But then we are told that Tokyo Drift, where everyone has flip phones, is like. Is is actually the future. <laughs> this will make so much more sense. I hope it is baffling right now, though. I hope it's fucking baffling. Yeah. Ah, <laughs> uh, but yeah. Anyway, and then and then four is when the big thing that four does is it reunites Brian and Do and Dom. Okay. Right? Uh, Fast Fast and Furious is about the two of them coming back together. Fast Five is the Avengers, which is pulling in characters from all over, right? Um, so you get Roman and Tej show back up. Um, you get characters from four, three, you know, you, you get a bunch of different characters all kind of rejoining the narrative, which is which is where, like, the family stuff really kicks in. Makes sense. I, I honestly, man, I wish I could go back. I wish I could, like, X-Men, like, blink thing you because... It is such a that's, fucking crazy that's Men in moment. Black, not X Men. Oh yeah, what is it? Yeah, right, Men in Black. Yeah, uh, because it is such like a crazy moment when all of these characters show up like one after another, right? Like, <laughs> okay, I I believe you, right? Like you know, we're putting together a crew, and it's like calls it all, you know, all the all all your friendly faces. I'm sure I I get that's yep. that's like the moment, right? It's like it's like what the Expendables does, but doesn't do any work for. Um, uh, Honestly, the the funniest thing about it is that it predates the event. Like, I keep calling it the Avengers of the Fast and Furious franchise, but Fast Five came out in 2011, which is a year before the Avengers came out. So, actually, the Avengers is like the Fast Five of the Marvel universe. Yeah, except, except we knew the Avengers was coming, right? Like, yeah, that's true. That's true. Right? Because, yeah. like, because I, I remember Fast Five was kind of like when it's like when someone, like, I remember seeing the post being like, holy shit. Like, this actually all makes sense now, right? Like, or at least, you know, to, to some level, right? Like, yep. um, so, yeah. Um, I don't know. You got anything else to say about Too Fast, Too Furious? No, no. I, I obviously love every single one of these these videos, and and I could talk about them for, for hours for no reason, but I think we're, we're done. We can, we can move on with our lives. <laughs> 
All right. Um, how was your week? Hmm. Well, the big thing that happened in my week is that I hit Legend in Hearthstone. Yay. Which I'm very proud of with that Quest Hunter deck. Actually, let me pull up some statistics. Let's take a look at these statistics. Because I, I kind of I haven't actually looked at them, but I think it'll be it'll be kind of neat to to sort of break it down. So I played a total of sixty six plus fifty five. That's one hundred and eleven plus five. One hundred and sixteen games. It took me one hundred and sixteen games to get from. Uh, it looks like it must have been plat. Um, it must have been plat ten, all the way to legend right which is going all the way through platinum and then all the way through diamond and then all the way up into um up into legend um over the course of that my win rate seems to have been i had 60 percent uh the win rate was in the in, in the high 60s in the high 60 percent what is the what's the average of 72 plus it would be 66 percent it was a 60 percent win rate on the fourth version of the deck and a 72% win rate on the on the first version of the deck and the other two were so minor that they they probably don't count so yeah so i guess i for i that that must be a really good win rate at that point i guess uh you know getting getting a 66% win rate to to kind of carry you to legend basically to explain to explain how some of this works for the uninitiated when it comes to hearthstone hearthstone has a star system right and basically it says every time you win you gain a star and every time you lose you lose a star right but there are uh there are floors and there are bonuses which is how people can kind of you can climb at a 50 percent win rate with stars and with the floor so basically if you lose a game at plat 5 or plat 10 or you know diamond 5 diamond 10 right like you can't sink once you've once you've achieved that that milestone right um so if you lose if you lose games there you are you are not penalized for losing those uh those games they don't count against your win rate essentially um and then when you win three games in a row the third game and every game thereafter will give you bonus stars right so um Winning three games in a row, you know, let's just say all else being equal, gives you four stars when winning three games, every, every other one would give you three stars, kind of like net, right? But the thing that I didn't quite realize is that actually that um, uh, three star or uh, that that win that bonus that the the bonus stars goes away in the bottom ranks of diamond, right? So from from diamond five to uh legend you never get bonus stars you you legitimately have to get you know like one star for every win all the way up you know through uh up and until you you hit legend um and you know i guess that's interesting i i like it it's it's kind of crazy that this was such a run that i was able to go on in terms of just like climbing and climbing I, it looks like i started yeah it was legitimately okay actually the first time i ran this quest hunter deck was in gold was in gold six so it was one two three four five sort of leagues um of of climbing all the way all the way to the top um and and the the ability to just kind of rocket past some of these ranks is all because of that that sort of like win rate 
uh, bonus, right? So getting out of plat took 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9... Uh, maybe 15 games, it looks like. Wow, yeah, f holy shit. Uh, it took 15 games to get all the way out of plat, but it would have taken me more than 50 games to get from uh, Diamond 5 to Legend. So, you know, I don't know. I don't know if any of this is fucking interesting. The real thing that was crazy to me about it was I had ha I had half the month left, so I was just like, I'm going to log on and start rolling some some hunter games and see what happens uh with this with this like questline hunter deck and i just happened to win the last four in a row some of which were you know like very like real wins i got a guy to uh <laughs> i got a guy to concede because i played an ice trap ice, ice trap is a, is a hunter trap it just says when your opponent casts a spell it bounces it back to their hand kind of like freezing trap um ice trap is insanely good in that deck because one of the big uh archetypes there's two big archetypes that you can really punish with ice trap number one is big spell mage so it is a mage deck that revolves around casting nine or ten mana spells and that's it so laying an ice trap against that deck is incredibly painful because normally what you want to do is you just toss out a really shitty spell right and you just let it sit in your hand and you don't and you don't worry about it but against those big mage decks you play an ice trap they try and cast their 10 mana spell it's gone they can't do anything with that. You know, like, they they can't get to 11 mana. They, they, they It just sits in their hand for the rest of the fucking game because there's nothing that they can do to ever cast it. Plus, they basically did 10 mana do nothing on their turn, right? Because they cast into, cast into an ice trap. And the other version of this is Druid, which is casting a lot of 8 mana spells. Um, uh, they have two spells. One is called, I think it's called Miracle Growth, and the other one is called um, Celestial Alignment, which are two really powerful, you know, really powerful spells. And one of those games I just won because I ice-trapped his Celestial Alignment. He tried to cast Celestial Alignment on eight and fucked it up, and he auto-conceded. And it was just like, I'm sorry, buddy, right? Like, that's <laughs> that's life. Basically, it's like, it's like casting a two-mana extra turn spell right like because he just sat there and, and did absolutely uh and did absolutely nothing um but in the very final game i thought i i should have lost right he legitimately outplayed me he played around the ice traps i was playing against big spell mage which is a favorable matchup um and he kind of forced me into this corner which you never want to get into with quest hunter where one of the things you're looking to do with that deck is you reset your your hero power to zero and then you know, the, 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 the end result of the quest is every time you cast a spell, you refresh your hero power. Right. So as a hunter, you're casting all these low mana cost spells and you're pinging face over and over again. Just like pow, 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 pow. With the mage, um, the thing that he did was I blew everything to get him to three health. And then I had an explosive trap on my side of the field, right? Um and all, and he knew that if he attacked into my explosive trap, he died, right? Uh, but he had one card that was able to give him five health back. He played the hero card, which also gave him, you know, two huge minions or whatever. Uh, and he set me up for lethal in the following turn. And there were maybe like three or four cards in the, in my deck at that point that I could have top decked in order to get lethal. And I just sort of happened to draw it. But it's just like. I guess, you know, you play to your outs. Um, anyway, now that I'm Legend, why, what reason is there to fucking play Hearthstone again, I guess? I don't know. Yep. <laughs> that was the breaks, right? Like, you know, what are you going to... What are you gonna do? So, what did you change about your deck to to make to, to make it to the legendary run? Oh, this is interesting. Okay, so the first version of the Questline Hunter. So I played I played four versions over the course of um, 
uh, over the course of it, where I was basically just kind of looking at what, what's the stuff that, you know, whenever I'm playing a deck for a really long time, there's always that feeling of what's the stuff I want to pull out? What's what's not pulling its weight, right? The first version of the deck was a little bit slower and included a package um, that I called the Bran package. Bran Bonds, Bronzebeard is a three mana two four that says your battle cries trigger twice. Um, and there was this package that I was using, which was Bran Bronzebeard um, and School Teacher. Uh, so School Teacher is a four mana four three that says. Um, Battle cry, you add a 1-1 Naga to your hand, and you teach it, quote-unquote, a spell to to cast when it comes into play, right? Which is an efficient... It's, it's, it's a small efficiency thing, because the, the Naga Ling is a 1-mana one 1-1. One, one. So you play School Teacher, you give it a 3-mana card, and that card can trigger your quest, right? So if I get an aimed shot, for instance, which just, you know, deals 3 damage to face or whatever, um, and I pay, play my my Noggling, that will advance the quest, so it's kind of like having a... Um, it's kind of like having extra spells in your deck, right? But the big thing that was really powerful for School Teacher is that when you Bran and School Teacher together, which is a nine mana combo, you get two Nogglings, and then you play both Nogglings, and you get those spells to cast twice, which is like insane value, right? Whole, whole decks have been built around that control interaction of being able to get, I mean, it's 12, three, or it's four, three mana spells, so up to 12 mana you know of of <laughs> stats plus you have all these bodies on the board and, and like threats that they need to deal with and stuff like that um but the thing about it that was bad was i'm playing a renathal deck right renathal ups my starting health to 40 which is actually really useful and important for quest hunter because one of the things that you need one of the decisions you need to make as quest hunter is i'm abandoning the board and i'm going face right you know i am in my kill zone here i've whatever it is i've activated my quest i'm um i'm sort of done with this portion of you know this this portion of the deck of fighting for the board i don't have very many minions in this deck i'm just going to send everything to face and i need to be able to weather 20 damage coming in because i'm just not clearing any of the opponent's boards right um and i was realizing that because i'm i'm playing that 40 card deck that 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 bigger renathal deck that finding both bran and uh school teacher was really painful and i didn't have a lot of other battle cry synergies to you know to get value out of combine with it yeah like there was the hero card that has some battle cry synergies because the hero battle cries in some secrets um there is uh one card that draws cards so there's i think there's one two three four five in a 40 card deck there's five cards yeah not bad you know what is that no a little bit 12% of the deck, right? Like 13.33% of the deck is is battle cries or whatever that can... Um, actually, it's a little bit more. There's two more than that, too. So there's, there's a, a certain amount of the deck that has this sort of, like, battle cry synergy. But just, like, finding Bran was so hard that it just didn't feel worth it. And I wanted the deck to be leaner, and I wanted it to be faster. Um, especially because Bran encourages you to be playing minions when the deck wants you to be playing spells to reset your hero power. So the first variation that I made, which didn't, which wasn't what I wanted, um, it added a card called Dragonbane Shot, which is a repeatable spell. As long as you're doing two damage or something, it, it pops back into his hand, basically. Um, it's two damage, honorable kill, you know, 
put a Dragon Bane shot into your hand. So if you're just killing two damage stuff, you can complete your quest without spending any cards, which is pretty valuable, right? Um, but it is a three mana do deal two damage card, which is very inefficient, right. and you just want to be faster than that. Um, and also, it was running uh, it was running some other tech cards that I just felt like weren't pulling their weight. Uh, there's a called called Urchin Spines, which gives your spells poisonous, which is like that's useful for clearing the board, but like. I'm just good enough to know when I need to not worry about that kind of thing. Um, so I pretty quickly got rid of that version uh, of the deck. Um, and I picked up a different version that was uh, specifically running um, a bigger spell secret package, right? So it was just finding... Uh, there two spells which are called Furious Howl, which is a two-mana spell, and it is draw a card until you have three cards in hand. So if you have one card in hand, it's two-mana draw two. If you have no cards, it's two-mana draw three, right? Which is a really powerful refill tool. Um, and then just a lot of, like, low, you know, low-cost shit, right? So that you could, uh, you could dump your hand at Furious Howl to get it all back, that kind of a thing. Also, I realized that there is another card in this deck called uh, Barack Kodobane that I was not using. He's a five mana three five. Um, that he's a five mana three five that draws you a one two and three cost spell. And Barack Kodobane does not seem powerful, but he was probably the best card in the deck on 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 the whole. In the sense that I feel like every game I cast Barack Kodobane, I I won just because he, the the refill is insane and getting a, a three five body is actually pretty useful too for a variety of you know a variety of different reasons. Um, so yeah, so that was the that was the big thing uh, that I that I changed in order to in order to like really own I don't know in order to really own that piece of piece of the puzzle. Nice, nice. Um, and you wrote it all the way to victory, so that's that's some good stuff too. Um, yeah. On my end, I have a couple things from the past couple weeks that I forgot to dig into. Um, there was another Rumbleverse beta, which was really good. A lot of fun. Um, they have increased some of the complexity on the base move set. Um, and they also announced it's like coming out, I think, like August 11th. So, wow. Um, uh, look forward to that. It is a ton, a ton of fun. I, I have rarely had this much fun with a game before. Um, what else? Um, while I was uh, a couple weeks ago visiting with some friends, I played... Boomerang Foo, which is a fun little indie game. Um, essentially, it's like a small multiplayer game. You play as a basically a cute little thing with a boomerang, and it's like a one-hit kill, and the idea is to be the last man standing. Um, then as you keep playing power-ups drop, um, I give you a variety of like unique little powers. It's a lot of fun for a very quick game. It was like, this is what we play when we were like, we don't feel like, you know, try-harding on Smash. We're gonna play some like dumb this dumb little boomerang game. So we played boomerang food, which is a lot of fun. Um, otherwise, last well, for most of last week, I was in Las Vegas, um, where I discovered that I hated Las Vegas once again. Every couple of years, I'm like, oh, I'll go to Vegas. That's a cool place. And then I realized I hate it, um, just because like everything is it's on the strip. Everything is so expensive, um, and like not worth like like I went to some nice restaurants, and I would say that the money was worth it there, but like. The fifteen dollar hamburger in like the in like the lobby of the hotel is not worth it, um, and it just was painful every time. Um, and it's also like one hundred and ten degrees outside, except for the one day it rained briefly when it was ninety. Well, you know what a relief, right? Uh, it was. It's. It is not. Uh, I don't know. It's not my favorite place to go. Um, 
Uh, and the only gaming kind of relevant thing there is that, uh, you know, I don't understand how video poker, uh, or I don't understand why people like video poker. We were talking a little bit about this before the show started, but like, there's like no control, right? Like, do you, what you control is the number of lines you bet, um, and then you hit a button, and then it tells you most of the time that you've lost your money, and then you hit the button again, and then you watch your money go away, and then uh, you walk away from the machine because like I, I, it's like. Even if it was just like something like Yahtzee, right? Like Yahtzee gives you a little bit of control, right? Like, or um, I don't like, I typically don't play table games. Um, but when I have in the past, those have been fun because you at least have like some control. Like you can control your odds, right? Like famously, the best game you have the best odds at is Blackjack. That's a little bit too algorithmic for me to like get a lot of enjoyment out of because you just kind of like play the odds. But like something like Roulette, right? Like, even though it is completely fucking random, you've got choices to make and you can put stuff down and like sometimes you win. Um, and it seems to me, at least, that, like, the table games are designed to churn you a little bit more, right? Like, you know, they give you a little bit so you keep playing and you, like, you can draw out the experience for a while. Um, I have never played, but I have heard from friends that enjoy it that Pi Gao is very good for, like, being a very slow-playing game where you don't drain your money very quickly. Um, but Slot seems like the opposite of that. It's just, like, you hit the button and you watch the lights light up. And if you're lucky, you get, like, some big lights and you get some money back, but most of the time you don't. Um, and so uh, I didn't even get any enjoyment out of that. So, yeah, this is one of those things that I worked, uh, th or not that I worked, that I that I like read up on, which we talked about, right? Like the real thing that gambling addicts are doing is they are paying gambling services for access to a thing that they want, right? Like they don't view it as right. a money making scheme; they view it as a service that they are purchasing, and they just have the the price of the thing happens to fluctuate. When the, and the thing that they are looking for is that machine zone where they can just kind of get rid of their anxieties um, and just kind of disappear into the into the game, which I think all of us would argue is something that you can do in like World of Warcraft way easier and way cheaper. But whatever. Um. <laughs> yeah, I mean, but that that was part of the thing, right? Like maybe I was like playing like the wrong amount. Like I was, you know, I I would be like, oh, I, I go sit down at like a relatively inexpensive slot and, like, play max lines because that gives you the most odds of winning. But I, like, burned through 20 bucks in, like, f five to ten minutes. And it's, like, that's not sustainable for any amount of time if I don't want to, like, you know, spend $1,000, which I didn't. Um, and so, like, you know, maybe there were cheaper slot machines. I just wasn't doing my homework to, like, find the right slot machine. But, like, like you said, right, you're, you're paying for flow state, essentially. Um, yeah, and the – and I – this is maybe where I risk a controversial opinion because this stuff bugs me, which is why which is why I ended up doing this research in the first place, right, to, to sort of see. Because people will talk about it. You know, I, Diablo Immortal actually might be a really good example of this, um, thinking about it, where the way people have talked about Diablo Immortal and Diablo Immortal's kind of monetization scheme, a lot of the time people will bring up that sort of gambling idea, right? That the idea is the game is taking advantage of people who are susceptible to gambling or they are gambling addicts or, 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 you know, something else sort of along those lines. Um, this I think is misguided and untrue. In fact, it is fundamentally untrue basically everywhere in gaming for as far as I can see. Right. Um, realistically speaking, I do think people are addicted, but I, I just think that they're addicted to not, they are not addicted to gambling because they do not look like gambling addicts. Right. Um, so the exact, like, you know, loot boxes are a good example of this. People talk about how, Oh, well like loot boxes are, th are this predatory force. They are gambling and they are attacking gambling addicts. Right. But the thing about a gambling addict is that a gambling addict is, using the process of gambling to achieve the flow state, 
right? Um, to get into the machine zone, right? Whereas I think the power of loot boxes are that they are that they have high quality items that people find desirable and it just obfuscates the process of getting the desirable item behind a variable number of loot boxes right so for instance if there is a new overwatch skin that you want if you want the lifeguard Farah skin or whatever right you need to purchase a certain number of loot boxes until you roll either enough coins that you can buy it or you roll the skin itself right um you can't just go buy but, it for like 10 bucks yeah, exactly but that process does not resemble the process of a gambling addict at all because the point of a gambling addict isn't that they roll loot boxes because they want something or in this instance they would be you know playing video poker they do not play the video poker because they want to make money gambling addicts understand that it is a losing proposition to play these games right what they want is access to the flow state and i do not think that there is a person out there who goes and opens loot box video or like opens loot boxes over and over and over again because opening loot boxes gives them access to the, to the flow state like i just think that that's like a fundamentally untrue proposition right really what these people are addicted to is gaming right they are gaming addicts who are addicted to the games that they are playing and therefore they are sent they are sinking the money into the game that the game you know essentially says this is the price you have to pay to get this thing in order to achieve that you know like in order to achieve that goal of whatever it is completing or or owning the thing in the game that they want but the thing that the the addictive piece there is the game it is not actually the monetization the monetization is taking advantage of one's addiction to overwatch it is not that it is inducing someone to be addicted to gambling on overwatch if that makes sense and i understand that that is an insanely you know weird like needle to thread you know, in, in like the whole conversation since I'm not, I don't actually think loot boxes, I don't actually think loot boxes are good. Obviously I think they're a pretty poor way to monetize, uh, you know, most, most games. Um, but it really bothers me when people use this language of, Oh, gambling, like these things are inducing gambling addiction in people. They are taking advantage of people's addictive tendencies towards gambling when no, that is a reflection of a misunderstanding of how gambling addicts work, right? And, uh, you know, yeah, that's like, that's just like a pet peeve thing yeah. that, that bothers me, I guess. So that's super interesting, and I, to I totally get that. Um, I wonder, kind of, like, because, like, I, I think this is also a thing that happens where people kind of, like, confuse consensual, less-than-ideal behavior with ruinous addiction, Right, like a lot of people you were talking about, I presume, because casinos are very successful businesses, do that do kind of like pay for flow state thing, and don't lose all of their money. Right, like they, they don't like you know end up like on the street. They just yep. spend their money in a way that we might view as like less um, less advantageous. And part of that too is like you know it's not necessarily for nothing. Right, like you get free drinks while you're gambling. Right. And like if you do it enough, you will be comped rooms. Right. Like they will they will want you to come back and spend more of your money on the gambling state. So it's not like it's, you know, I mean, that, like, again, it doesn't make it good. This is like the difference between like, you know, assuming that every, anybody who, you know, this is like a, a drinking thing. Right. Like, you know, like, yes, it is probably not good to go get like plastered, you know, 
uh, do, do it plastered in any case, right? But if you do it once in a while, it's not the end of the world. It's only if you're doing it every day and you're spending all of your money on booze and you're like living at the bottom of a bottle, you can't hold on a job that it becomes ruinous, right? Yeah. Um, no, I mean, that's that's what a high-functioning alcoholic is, yeah. right? Someone who's able to keep a job and, and have normal relationships, but they are also, you know, an addict to alcohol. Um, and I think that, that that, you know, that kind of person also exists for other forms of... Yeah. Um, other forms of addiction, and and I think I th so. This is the interesting thing with with with, with loot box and like games ga gambling ish stuff. Um, is part of the thing here is because it's all individualized. You can feed in the high early, right? Like I feel like if the first time I sat down at a slot machine and I put twenty bucks in, my first thing was a win. It was a, like you know a moderate win, like you know you won you know ten bucks back, right? I'm like, oh, this is great, and I had chased that maybe a little bit further than the twenty dollars. But because it's like an arbitrary machine and because, you know, they're highly regulated machines, right? They can't do that. They can't, you know, like they could – the technology probably exists. They could like, you know, camera in on you and like set the machine to like win. But, you know, obviously that – that means it's not a game of chance and it like breaks all sorts of regulations around around the machines, right? Um, but there's nothing like that around uh, video game boxes. And so like, you know, as a feature – they will say, like, you know, your first pack is guaranteed to, like, pop off, right? Like, and, you know, there is, you know, bad luck protection. So at some point, you will get the, the, the dubers, right? Like, that was part of, that's part of the reason why, like, I, I, you know, like I said, I fell off the slot machines, right? Like, in my $20, I got, like, a win for, like, 15 cents once, right? And it's like, fuck you, right? Like, you know, there's, and, and if, you know, they had some sort of bad luck protection, I might have stayed around longer, right? Again, none of this is talking about the ethicality of any of this because it's all bad, but, like, it's targeting a different different thing. Um, uh, I think to your point, too, right, like, loot boxes, I feel like there are less people, like, the, the stories you hear about people being ruinous with loot boxes is there are a couple, but a lot of them seem to be, like, less ruinous and more like people who have too much money that spend it or, like, kids who don't really understand what they're doing spending a lot of money. Right, like they're 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 you know granted there are definitely some people who will spend themselves out of house and home, on on loot boxes. But I feel like that is a less common story than people who like gamble themselves out of house and home. Um, and so I th I think I agree with you that it's like basically targeting a, a different kind of behavior. Yep. Yeah. Um, you know, I just I it, I think this stuff is is kind of complicated especially because like addiction itself is yeah. like a pretty complicated thing like one of the prerequisites to define an addiction is you have to be able to um you know you have to be able to demonstrate that ruination right um you know so for instance I tell this story all the time when I was well maybe I shouldn't tell this story whatever when I was when I was an RA in college um you know we knew of a resident who was using heroin, uh, you know, like the hardest drug that there is. Cause she was a stripper on like the side or whatever. Um, and her stripper friends got her, got her into heroin, but you, but like her grades were fine. She was still active on campus, right? Like, and she just needed to, she just used heroin in order to keep herself kind of calm and get through the stress of, uh, you know, like working at, uh, 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 like a, like a high end university, right? Like, you know, in these, in these really competitive programs. Um, 
and th- and that's a tough thing. How do you re- how do you reconcile that, right? Like we all understand that heroin is awful and will like cause people to you know turn into junkies or whatever else, right? Um, but like, well, what so, is so, the so relationship that, between? That's the thing. So this is very interesting because I have heard this. There, there is a professor at a university. I forget. Uh, he's a professor at Columbia University. His name is Carl Hart. He like. One of his big things is, like, he now openly does heroin. He has done it for a while, but he is like, you know, I am responsible about it, right? Like, I didn't do it when I was raising my kids because I needed to raise my kids. My kids are in college now, and so my wife and I occasionally do a little bit of heroin for fun. And we're responsible about it, and that's fine. Obviously, this comes from kind of like a drug decriminalization kind of angle, right? It's like most adults can handle this with their lives, right? Like, you know, and, you know, it could turn you into a junkie, right? And there should be support, like, you know, there's, there's talks about, like, you know, how we deal with, like, what's the appropriate response, what's the appropriate legal legalization, decriminalization regime to deal with, like, you know, the most vulnerable people that, that you know, potentially go for a ride on this stuff. But, like, to your to your point, there's not – like, if you are actually have your shit together, right, like, it's just a vice, right? Like, there's not necessarily anything wrong with it. Um, and I think some of the thing – something that you're talking about um, kind of is, like, there's this, like, conflation of addiction and dependence, Right. Mm -hmm. Like because like dependence is like the chemical physiological need. Right. Like, you know, I probably at this point have a a dependence on caffeine. Right. Because I drink enough of it. Right. Um, Am I addicted to it? Um, To your, you know, like part of the definition of addiction is harm. It's like I'm not going and fucking like knocking over, you know, the local Wawa to like steal like a, you know, a a tub of coffee. Right. Like, um, and so I don't think anybody would say I was addicted. And in the same way, right, like video games, you cannot be chemically dependent on them, at least not in like the, the sense that, um, that that dependence means, right? Like you can only be addicted to them in the sense that you ignore your your duties um, or you ignore your... Well, so you, you can become chemically addicted in the sense that it is the thing that you rely on in order to kind of induce your brain. This right. is the same thing as the machine zone, right? Like you right, induce the, 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 the desirable state of your brain. But it is not an external chemical that you are applying right. to yourself. Right, it, it, yeah, it, is yeah, not, yeah. it is not dependence is what I mean, right? One could addict themselves to anything by that standard. Right, right? yes. Like as long as you can find a way to make model trains give you the good brain juice, right? Like you can become addicted to model trains. Yeah, I mean, and you know what? I'm sure that like they would never describe it this way, but there are stories of like dudes who like, you know, spend fortunes on, like, recreating, like, you know, tiny villages in their basements to their wives' yep. chagrin, right? Like, you know. <laughs> um. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, and it's funny because, like, another statistic that I think is, is fucked up and tough to hear is that more people quit drugs than uh, become addicted to them, right? Which is this idea that, I mean, th- this is one of those things that I, I think is kind of weirdly misleading, but it's one of those statistics that, that bounces off of you. Because there's this idea that, like, anyone who ever does heroin will become a junkie, right? But the reality is that most people quit before that happens, right? The, like, only a, a smaller than 50%, you know, subset will actually follow that addiction all the way into, you know, what we would describe to be a state of, like, they are a, they are a junkie to the 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 like the chemical right, um, and the I I'm pretty sure that the, this statistic is misleading because it includes people who do it once, once and yeah. never ever do it again. You know what I mean? Like if you were to sort of look at it and and measure against the use case 
I'm pretty sure it would ramp up pretty quickly. It's kind of like how um, it's kind of like how most people who smoke don't get lung cancer, but most people who get lung cancer are smokers, right? Where there's a clear causal link between the two. It is just that it's just like not quite as one to one as you would think. Uh, um, this is this is, like, this is true of a lot of things, right? Like most people yeah. who are homeless are homeless for a day or two. Right. And yeah, yeah. Um, and, you know, but, the, you know, the issue is with the, the, the chronically homeless or the chronic users or, you know, um, or the chronic smoker. Right. Like or the chronic gambler. Right. Or or the chronic gamer. God damn it. <laughs> we are peddlers of <laughs> yeah, sin I mean, on this I podcast. I, I probably qualify for some level of like, like, I, you know. I'm probably a high-functioning gaming addict by most metrics, right? In the sense that, like, the amount of time I put into video games must be absolutely fucking insane by, like, most people's standards, I'm sure. If I were to go to some, like, psychologist's office and they were to ask, how many hours do you put into video games, I'm sure it would be the biggest category, right? Like, you know? But, like, also at the end of the day, you know, that's just because... It is the yeah. it's like the conduit for a social life, right? Yeah, I mean, in in the states in the status of quarantine and everything else. Not, not only that, but there's also like you know, wh where does like choice diverge from like ruination, right? Like you know, at, like you know, there is there is potentially an argument, right? Like that, like you know, someone who chooses to drink themselves to death. Maybe that's just what they want to do, right? Like, you know, and like, you know, like, obviously, I don't think that's great, but like, their choice at some level, right? But like, to, to, to your point, right? Like, I don't know, like, I don't think either of us would be considered addicts, because like, you know, if your house was burning down, you would leave the house, you wouldn't finish the raid, right? Like, you know, if you, you know, if your gaming was interfering with your ability to do your job, you would probably game less. Or find another job that would accommodate your gaming, right? Which and that's like kind yeah. of like at that level of like, well, is it detrimental, right? Like you took a lower, like you know, theoretically you took a part-time job so you could game more. Is that like at the level where it's detrimental, or is that just kind of like you making a choice to live the life the way you want to, right? Um, and that addiction that I think only comes when it's like it feels like you are no longer in control, like you are no longer capable of making the choice. I guess I don't know. Yeah. Part of this, whoever is this thing. Neither of us are doctors. Neither of us are psychiatrists. You know, if you were going, <laughs> if, if you true. were thinking like, should I do heroin? And you heard me say like, some people can use heroin responsibly. <laughs> don't listen to me, right? Like, <laughs> please do not go do heroin. You know, what's funny. I, one, of, one of the things that I think is maybe the most foundational pieces of writing I've ever read in my life, which is funny because I ended up taking a class from this guy, um, but he wrote a um, God. The fuck was his? Um, his name is Matthew Clam, and in 2001, he wrote an article called Experiencing Ecstasy, right, for the New York Times Magazine, which was a really long, kind of drawn-out article uh, explaining how his use of ecstasy at Dartmouth in the 80s was very different than the modern use of ecstasy as a party drug in New York City in the early 2000s, right? This was in 2001 that he wrote this uh, That he wrote this. Uh, uh, article and I read that article when I was a kid because um, that was the thing I used to do. I used yeah. to read articles in the New York Times Magazine. Though I was 
very young to be reading that at the time I realized I would have been 11. Uh, <laughs> but anyway, I remember reading that article and thinking a lot about it. And uh, and eventually he came and he was like a like an adjunct professor at Hopkins. And I took a class from him, which was really cool and everything. Um, but in the article about ecstasy, the thing that he talks about was no one had access to it, right? So they had sort of forced moderation, which was once every one, like every once in a while, somebody would take a trip down to New York and they would buy a bunch of it for everyone, right? You know, like they would all be, they would become, uh, you know, like a drug, a drug smuggler at that point, right? They would buy like a ton of it and then cart it back and everyone would get a cup, you know, like you, you would get a couple of the pills that you got and they would do it, you know, five hits over the course of a month or something like that right before before there was ever the chance for somebody to go and and get more of it right um and how that had the effect of physiologically speaking making it so that the drug was uh like much better and much more enjoyable right um and the article eventually goes into the physiology of people who go out and are using ecstasy every single weekend at clubs and raves and stuff in the new york city nightlife are sort of inducing like really like crazy depression and anxiety problems in themselves because the thing when you take a lot of a drug that interacts with your brain physiology is you are training your brain to no longer naturally generate those chemicals it is just waiting for you to take the pill this happens with sleep this happens with sleeping pills actually this is why people who are on sleeping pills sometimes get worse insomnia because they train themselves to not be able to sleep without a pill um, anyway, and it's just like that stuff I find to be incredibly fucking fascinating. And also I don't do drugs. So don't listen to anything I have to say. Yeah. <laughs> um, no, Lou, Lou says in the chat, you know, what are we talking about? I was out buying heroin. <laughs> told me to, <laughs> uh, you know what, He's just Lou? walking down the street, Lou, <laughs> get, get, get a little heroin. Lou, of all the people I know, I'm <sighs> sure you, you are, I, in the top 10 of people I think who could responsibly use heroin. So go for it. Um, uh, 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 so what else is going to say? I, you know, I've been, I have mentioned on this podcast that I, I have occasionally partaken in psychedelics. Um, and I can feel that, right? Like, like I, there is like good science around, like, you know, if you do it every weekend, you will quickly build up a tolerance and you will not be able to, um, to do it. Like, uh, or you will not be able to like experience the same effects. Um, there's just a bunch of stuff like that, right? Like, you know, um, uh, but yeah, you know, again, that's, that's, uh, <laughs> that's, it's, it's, I don't know. It's, it's a weird world. Um, yeah. I know it, it, it's interesting just because like, it's interesting because like, it, it, there is like, there are like legitimate therapeutic uses for some of this stuff, right? Like, you know, without even going into like the, like the, the, the easy test case for this, which is, uh, uh, you know, um, uh, opioids, right? Like opioids are like you know real medicine that 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 sometimes gets abused. Although the statistics around that are are actually super, like this is what like we were talking about like misleading drug statistics. One of the interesting things is that like most op op prescription opioid abuse isn't by like it's not like you know most people who take opioids for pain relief um, become addicts. It's that most prescription opioid abuse is people taking it from their friends and family who have extra prescription, right? Um, it's you know, but we're we are way outside of the the kin of our podcast. We talk about games on this podcast. This talk, this podcast is about games, you guys. Yeah. Uh, yep, definitely games. Yeah. This this podcast is now some derps talk about 
Fast and Furious and heroin, I guess. Um, <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, I guess that's our show. <laughs> you have anything you want to talk about, buddy? Uh, I have nothing else that I want to talk about. Uh, the, the Immortal Empires map uh, is a oh, thing right. of beauty, and I've cried about it. It is done. We have seen all the start positions. It's fantastic. And the uh, they have announced the release date for Mortal Empires, which is August 23rd. Nice. Um, which I'm very excited to take a fucking day off work to just play play the shit out of. Very cool. Um, only other thing from my end is is uh, Dark uh, Pathfinder 2E released Dark Archive, um, which is pretty cool. It's got it's like their their um a, the big occultist book. They've got like a, the psychic in it and the thaumaturge. Um, and one thing that I want to highlight, just because it was making the rounds on Twitter, is it's an archetype called Time Mage, which is like, you know, very time-focused caster um, thing. And uh, one of the feats you can get is um, essentially anytime you summon a creature, instead of summoning a creature, you summon an alternate dimension or an alternate timeline version of yourself. Um, and so, like the like, you know, the devil you summon is... You, if you had been a devil in an alternate timeline, and the big meme that was showing up, it doesn't technically work with the rules. Is like every DM's nightmare. It says summon, summon, uh, summon instrument, and you summon, you know, like summoning an instrument version of yourself was making the rounds on on Twitter. But uh, it was, uh, it it's super neat. I love Pathfinder 2E. Um, I've been having a lot of fun playing it. So big recommends to anybody out there for your uh, tabletop gaming needs. Um, yeah, uh, but with that, I'll uh, I'll lead us into the outro. Uh, you know, if you'd like to reach us, uh, tell us any of the things you thought about Too Fast, Too Furious, or Heroin. I guess you can reach us at servicesplaygames at gmail.com or pockets at servicesplaygames.com. We watch these at Twitch TV where these go out live. You can hang out with uh, our very dedicated fans. Um, and uh, what else? We've got a uh, we've got we've got you can rate reviews anywhere. These go up on YouTube sometimes, and uh, uh, you get there's a podcast feed. There's a Patreon, too. Support us if you feel like it. Uh, we appreciate our Patreons very much. Uh, yeah, but that's everything I have. Buddy, you have anything else you want to promote? I have nothing else that I am looking to promote. All right. Well, in that case, I'm going to say uh, until next time, dear listeners. Until next time, loyal listeners.